Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 142 of the Brown County Hour. This is Sarah Lytle. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, in tribute to the passing of a well-respected Brown County person, Danny Harden, we're featuring our interview with him and his bluegrass band, Hamilton Creek, that we recorded in 2017. We'll also be sharing three songs they performed live in our studio. In the continuation of our ongoing feature, Ordinary People, this month we'll share one from Don Snyder and another from Rick Kelly. State deer biologist Joe Caudill from the DNR talks about deer in our area. And we have essays from Jim Eagleman, Dave Seastrom, and a poem from Andrew Hubbard. Our interview with Danny Harden and members of his band, Hamilton Creek, begins our first segment. Jim Eagleman shares his thoughts on the back country and will close with Hamilton Creek tune, Kentucky Chimes. just been treated to a, a marvelous in-studio performance from Hamilton Creek, who have been here before, and we've always enjoyed uh, their music, but they've got a brand new CD out called Been a Long Journey. And so in celebration of that, uh, they've come back in and they've recorded several live tunes for us. And so I'm going to let them introduce themselves individually. So go ahead, gentlemen. Hi, I'm Neil Smith. I play guitar and sing. <laughs> I'm Dan Harden. I play banjo and vocals. I'm Kevin Cox. I play mandolin. I sing just a little bit. And I'm Frank Hillegas. I'm the bass player. And you didn't sing at all. No. He can sing, but it's hard to get him to do it. <laughs> they don't well, give me a mic. They won't give me a mic. That's what it's like when you play with a group of guys, isn't it? <laughs> well, so tell us about this new CD. Where'd you record it? We recorded my brother, Doug Harden. Uh-huh. He has a digital studio in his basement. He's had one for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And so nepotism starts at home for you. That's right, buddy. Good studio time. There you go. You know, and he's recorded quite a few guys, Frank Jones and a bunch of different people that he's done, Robbie Bowden and uh, Dave Denman and those. He's, he's done quite a few. So, And he knew bluegrass because we grew up playing together, so... 
he's the only one I really trusted to record us. Well, there you go. And uh, now, Danny, I know you go way back in bluegrass, and you know all of the greats there from Bill Monroe. You want to talk about some of that a little bit? Well, I'm not the only one. Kevin knows a lot of them, too. His dad was up there, and Frank does, too. But Kevin's dad, Jack, was up there for, God, I don't know how many years. Uh, Close to 40 years, I think, he was there. So he played with all of the greats, too? He played with several of them, yeah. Well, it's still quite a fine festival, even though most of the yeah, main it's, it's stages... still it's still I I consider it myself a kind of one and only thing. It's I had tapes of my father back through the years playing there, and and uh, it was kind of a treat to know it was coming from the Brown County Jamboree Barn. It was a big deal. Well, it is a big deal, and it's right here in Brown County, which right. makes it even more special. You know, considering that Brown County didn't really make, didn't get on the map until Bill Monroe decided to show Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah, he bought it in 52, wasn't it, Kevin? 52 or 3. 52, and he uh, bought it from Francis Rund, and he had shows up there every Sunday after church about 1 o'clock, and that's where I cut my teeth, and I know where Kevin played there a bunch, yeah. and Neil, too, and you, I don't know if you did, you did too, didn't you, Frank? No, I never did play there. You didn't play there? But um, it was a real treat going there. You know, Bill's brother, Birch, ran it, and that's another story all in itself. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's kind of famous, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, he'd always say, when you play up there, boy, you want me to play a fiddle tune with you? And we'd all look at each other like, that's Bill's brother. We have to let him. You know, we have to let him. He'd always play Boston right. Boy. and It's like having a girlfriend that sings, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, best thing, uh, well, the reason why I wanted that on our cover, we, we talked about is that's basically where us three, we started, you know, we started playing there. Well, you guys are true keepers of the flame. That's right, we are. Yeah. We are bluegrass boys. Absolutely. You know, but he, but it was, uh, to me, Bean Blossom was school bluegrass and still is. Yeah. You know, the only bad thing about it is now all the first generation's gone. They're all passed away. Well, we're counting on you guys to keep yeah, that flame. Well, there's alive. a second generation in there, so yeah. But the first generation's gone. So, but that's where we. I got my inspiration to play, and that's why I still like playing. I love playing with these guys a whole lot, whole well, lot. It makes me. We well, see how I'm smiling the whole well, time. Oh, absolutely. I can't help it. Picking and a grinning. Can't help it. No denying it. You know. So you guys play a regular gig. Mm-hmm. Where can we hear you? Every second Friday of the month, we play at the A. Martin Lodge at the restaurant up there, Little Jim Restaurant. <clears throat> they pay us and they feed us, and that's they lose money on that part. <laughs> okay? <laughs> they lose money on that part. But uh, we play all over. You know, we've, we've done a lot of stuff for a couple things for traditional arts, of, you know, with John Kay. And we do stuff down here at the Playhouse. Matter of fact, March the 4th, we're doing the Brown County Bluegrass Bash, and it's going to be us, Hamilton Creek, Blue Mafia, and Blue Collar Bluegrass. So that's that'll be a good thing. And we've opened for Barney Unleashed <laughs> for his playhouse, and we did uh, the Brown County Award Show that one year. Uh-huh. You know, but we just, we just play. Basically, whoever shows us the money is where we show up. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so you all have a website? No, not yet. We have a Facebook page, but not a website. Okay, so it's Hamilton Creek on Facebook. Yeah. I believe we're friends on Facebook, too. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. 
I read your ramblings all the time. <laughs> well, I apologize for That's that. That's okay. I like it. <laughs> we haven't came out with a website yet. You know, we've been working on it. And, and since we changed one personnel, we got to, you know, have, you know, get our photographs taken. But it's wintertime. We're like old bears. We hibernate yeah. in the wintertime. Well, it sounds like you do a little practicing, too, while you're hibernating. Well, matter of fact, we hadn't played since December 9th, have we, Frank? That's probably the last time we played it, Dave. Yeah. Lunch. yeah. Yeah. Well, you sounded mighty fine tonight, gentlemen. And uh, okay. So if you want to listen to these guys, we can go to your Facebook page and see where your next gig is going to be. Oh, yeah. we keep I keep the schedule on there. Excellent. Excellent. And, and I also put it on uh, the Nashville, the other music city, and Brown County Music, and Southern Indiana bluegrass and things like that, but I try to get everybody informed. Sometimes I'm a little lax, but I I work on it. Well, it is the 21st century, and we're all kind yeah, of being drugged in, kicking and screaming. <laughs> but again, thank you so much for coming in. No, guys. we appreciate it. Excellent you know. music, great time. Love having you come in. It's a real privilege <laughs> to be part of what you all do. But if you want to get hold of us and you know, play your show, private parties or whatever, we on our Facebook page, it has a call button. Press the call button and call us right to me. There you go. So, Well, again, thanks for coming in, guys. Appreciate Welcome. it. Thank you. Mention to anyone you are a Brown County visitor and visions of lush ravines, ridgetop trees that touch the sky, and pristine lakes may come to mind that are busy sidewalks, traffic lines, and road repairs. This county's beauty, some might say its entire reputation as an Indiana getaway, is enjoyed mainly by motorists. I'll include mountain bikers, horse riders, kayakers, canoeists, backpackers, nature photographers, fishermen, and mushroom hunters, all arriving by car. We can drive many miles and through these hills and see from the windshield a vast, unexplored, and rugged land. But until the boot tread hits the trail, I feel you miss out on a wonderful experience to see it up close and personal. And it's this outdoor experience that continues to attract visitors here year-round. I realize not all come to hike. Nashville and the surrounding towns with many shops, restaurants, wineries, and breweries rate high with return visitors. Music venues, open mics, festivals, and contests entice performers. And special events, parades, and holiday celebrations entice. So many things to do and enjoy. Our hospitality sign is out all year, and we're open for business to welcome our guests. I once used the term... Backcountry hoping to include park visitors, 
who wanted a little bit more of an adventure. Bushwhacking through dense vegetation with scars and blisters came to mind, said a friend. So I soon dispensed with the term. I meant to enjoy a little used trail, an old logging road or a deer trail that the park and state forest has plenty of. A snack and some water was all that was needed. Since then, it conjures up for me any place beyond a familiar road or trail that can be explored. Into the hinterlands, I had hoped, remote and uncharted. The boondocks, the boonies, the outback. Years ago, when I started with the DNR at Brown County State Park, my first impression was overwhelming. At 16,000 acres, it didn't matter. I'd have a lot to see. The thought it was large enough added to the mystique, botanizing and birding, learning new trees, the geologic story. It all gave me goosebumps. I was giddy to think I was to work here. And on days off with friends, we hiked park trails and explored buildings that would later be used for programs and interpretive hikes I scheduled. We visited landmarks like Deserter's Cave in the park, Deer Run, and the CCC Stone Quarry, old homesteads with gravestones and a tall cedar, hinted of past days, remnant daffodil plantings still existed near a garden plot. And with nearly every excursion out into the boonies, I came upon a small pond. Did the sellers make these ponds? Were they water sources for them, or were they constructed in more recent years, maybe for recreational fishing? I didn't know, and I read through the park's history files and visited local libraries, and I had a lot to learn. While working at Turkey Run State Park, I enrolled at DePauw University in Greencastle for a master's degree in botany a favorite discipline that would help me with my work. And when we moved to Brown County, I continued to take classes on my days off and soon found more information about those park ponds. I learned the ponds were installed by the DNR's Division of Fish and Wildlife. Back then it was fish and game. As a source of water for woodland species, next to the pond, a clearing was created for a food plot, planted in millet, milo, sorghum, and sunflowers, and as late as the 1960s, Brown County State Park was one of the many state and federal sites in southern Indiana for this woodland game project, later called the Forest Wildlife Project. Secluded and nearly forgotten, I wanted to learn more about these ponds, particularly since in addition to providing water, they were also breeding sites for frogs, toads, turtles, and salamanders. What kind of herptile production, that's what they call these things collectively, were these ponds experiencing? Was there any maintenance required to keep them viable? And how many were there on park property? At his retirement, I interviewed Maury Reeves, one of the biologists who installed these ponds in the early 60s. He told me once a bulldozer operator and a laborer found a suitable site, they dug it out, then moved on to another site the next day. 100 ponds were installed on park property over three years. They were usually about 50 to 60 feet in diameter and approximately 6 feet deep in the center. Dirt was pushed up, creating an earthen dam, and trees were stockpiled off to the side or used to reinforce the circular dam. Consulting a topo map daily, the pond site was to be installed at the end of a long ridge before the land dropped off, with a site for the food plot nearby. Rainwater usually filled the pond within a year, he said. Utilizing volunteer help, one summer we compiled GPS coordinates of as many of these park ponds as possible. 
Many are still holding water, a few suffer from cattail encroachment, and some show signs of horse impact. Since they are close to backcountry horse trails, where riders give horses a drink, a grad student study over three years monitored the production of aquatic species there and was shared with DNR property managers whose properties also have ponds. The ponds are what I like to call backcountry jewels, since they are rare, have high value to wildlife, and can require some time to discover. Brown County backcountry is daunting, extremely rugged and defined by deep ravines and narrow ridges that all look alike, said a friend of mine. Venturing out into backcountry is a serious endeavor. Shouldn't be taken lightly, rather prepared for, maybe researched. Phone apps now pinpoint your travel, show you a route in and a route out, and replace the trusty topo map. Hike with a friend is still the backcountry hiker's mantra. Thankful these Brown County jewels exist. I'm eagerly planning my next backcountry hike with hopes of finding another wildlife pond. Jim Eagleman for Nature Ramblings, the Brown County Hour. Thanks for listening.
Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Support for WFHB comes from Our Brown County, a magazine for locals and visitors featuring art, entertainment, and county characters since 1995. Printed six times a year and available online. More at OurBrownCounty.com. Segment two kicks off with a conversation we had with state deer biologist Joe Caudell. We'll hear Hamilton Creek's song, Takes One to Know One. In the latest installment of Ordinary People, we'll hear from Dawn Snyder as she talks about her dad's time as sheriff. And we'll end with the Hamilton Creek song, 99 Years. So it is my pleasure to introduce Joe Caudell, who is the DNR state deer biologist. Thank you. As state deer biologist, what do you do? So basically my job is to be responsible for, ultimately for managing our deer herd within the state. That's from all the way from up, you know, in Elkhart or Lake County, all the way down to the very southern part of the state. And so just really anything to do with deer. And that can range from working with hunters, working with deer vehicle collisions, helping individuals who are having problems with deer in their gardens or crops or any of that kind of issues with deer. Well, that's a good question. So... Many of us have hit deer. What is the proper thing to do when that happens? So the most important thing you can do is really understand when deer are moving. Okay. First of all, most collisions occur about this time of year because it's the breeding season. Right. Bucks are really on the lookout for does. They're not really paying attention to anything else. And so we often hit them when they're running across the roads looking for does. And so one, just being aware that they're out there and not paying attention. So us being hyper-focused on looking for deer on the side of the roads, using high beams, flipping back and forth between high and low beams so we can spot the deer further away. Okay. And if we see them, just expect that they're probably going to cross the road and start to slow down, you know, have your foot covering the brake and being ready to stop. A lot of times if I see somebody behind me, I'll just go ahead and start tapping my brakes and getting ready. But the best thing to do is try to come to a stop, not swerve to try to miss the deer because then that can put you off the road and and flip a vehicle. Well, it's been my experience. If you have one deer that crosses the road in front of you, there's usually going to be more of them. That's right. Do you have an estimate of how many white-tailed deer there are in Indiana? No, that's actually something we're working on. And so historically, we've never had an estimate. Well, when we first started introducing deer, we had an estimate. We had like, you know, 15. And then we had a few more after that. And they came from Michigan, correct? Wisconsin, I think, was the primary place that a lot of them came from. And so over time, they lost track. And then we started here about two or three years ago working on a program to figure out how to estimate the deer population in Indiana. because. It's really hard to count deer. They move, they hide. And so we're working on that. And probably in the next year or two, we'll have a good estimate for how many we have across the state. 
Well, is there a trend in tagged deers during hunting season? Are we seeing more deer being taken or the, are the numbers stable? Or It's pretty stable. So from the time we introduced them until maybe about 20 years ago, we were seeing an increase in the deer harvest. And then it came back down a little bit, which we would expect. And then it's just kind of stabilized. And so it fluctuates by several thousand from year to year. That's wow. pretty normal. We might see this year, you know, an, a couple of more thousand than was harvested last year or a couple of fewer thousand than was harvested last year. Is that Does that correlate with the number of hunting licenses that are sold? Yeah. So if we have an increase in, in hunters, so during the period where we had COVID, we had a lot of people who had time to get out and do right. things, hunting and fishing. And so we actually saw more hunting and fishing license being sold and more deer and more turkeys being taken. Well, all right. So we were also talking about some of the disorders that the deer are experiencing, including the chronic wasting disease, which mm -hmm. you informed us has not been present in Indiana. Right. So every year we test for chronic wasting disease in our harvested deer. And we've been doing this about 20 years now. And so far, we haven't detected it in Indiana. It's likely it's going to happen in the future. And it's even a possibility that it's out there and we just haven't found it. Okay. But to date, we haven't found it in any part of Indiana. So you met, you did mention that, to your knowledge, there is no transmission of chronic wasting disease by eating the meat from a deer that has this mm -hmm. disorder. Yeah. The CDC and, and the DNR, we all recommend that if you test a deer and it tests positive, that you, you don't eat it. Okay. And this would be for any disease. I've not seen chronic wasting disease, but the, the sound of the disorder probably indicates that we're not going to be looking at a, an animal that's very healthy. Actually, early on in the disease, it can look perfectly fine oh. because it's a chronic issue. They can actually have the disease for two and a half years before it finally kills them. Oh. And so they don't start looking like you would typically think of a chronic wasting disease deer, which is thin and disoriented, maybe stumbling around until essentially those last six months of its life. Yeah, so that's end stage. Right. And, but the first two years, it looks like a normal, healthy deer. And, and hunters, if they are concerned about their deer and just want to have it tested just, you know, for peace of mind, they can bring it to any of our fish and wildlife properties or our hatcheries. We can arrange to have the lymph nodes, which is what we use for testing, okay. removed from the deer so we can have it tested. And we do that for free for hunters in addition to our random testing that we do around the state in different places. Are there other disorders affecting the white-tailed deer in Indiana? Probably the biggest one that hunters and other people get concerned with is a disease called epizootic hemorrhagic disease, or EHD, and a lot of people refer to it as blue tongue. And what happens is about every five to seven years, we have an outbreak of EHD, and it causes a fairly large number of deer to die. And people see them on the landscape. They're often associated with water. People will find like a deer floating in their pond or something like that. And it's caused by this virus that just, you know, kind of goes through the deer population. A lot of times it's when we have a drought and the deer are attracted to whatever bodies of water are left. And these midges or noceums okay. are essentially growing in the mud and the, these midges 
might bite an infected deer. And if you have a lot of deer coming to a watering hole, it can transmit the disease from deer to deer. And then that's what winds up killing a large proportion of them. This is one of the things that we monitor for and watch out for and 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 people can report. Well, uh, what about deer. the meat from Lutong? This is one that's, again, not known to affect humans at all. University of Georgia, which has done a lot of work on this, has actually been studying this disease since, I think, the early 80s. And it's not one that's known to affect people at all. Does DNR have a recommendation in regards to eating it? Well, people would never know if their deer has it or, or doesn't have it. Because if the deer is still alive, it would look just like a normal deer. I see. And so it's, it's one that they just would never know about. Since we we're talking about this topic of diseases, a lot of folks, when they see something kind of odd out in the wild, this type of information is extremely important for us. This is how we kind of pattern what's going on in the deer herd in terms of diseases. We have an online reporting system. Okay. Usually the way I find it to go on and report it is I just do a quick Google search and type in Indiana DNR, report a sick deer, and a reporting form will come up. Folks can enter the location, what they observed. This is actually good for any sick animals. And so they can they put in what species of wildlife they're looking at. So if they saw like a ra raccoon acting oddly, they could report okay. it there. It's a great tool for biologists that actually gets the public involved with. You know, we look at this, we look for patterns. This is how we found that we were having so many deer die in Franklin County. It was just the, the public reporting it, hunters reporting it reporting their observations. We went out and tested and was able to figure out what was going on. And then that told us the magnitude of the outbreak so we could actually even adjust our deer harvest regulations the, the, the year it happened. So I would say if, you know, folks listening can do anything, it's really like find that tool and, and keep it handy if they ever see something they want to report. Well, it's been my experience that the DNR website is highly informative. And if you want to know anything about hunting regulations... Do a deer search for deer and Indiana DNR, and you'll come up with our page, and it's got yeah. all sorts of resources on there. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this information with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed it. You know, happy to come out and do this anytime. Little girl, you stand by.
good evening. This is Vivian Wolf, and this is Ordinary People Telling Ordinary Stories. Our guest this evening is Dawn Snyder, who grew up in Brown County, and her dad was Punk Snyder, the sheriff. So she has lots of stories about schools, about her dad, and just about living in Brown County. Welcome, Dawn. Hi. Thank you. Well, I'll start out by saying when my dad married my mom, one of the things that he told her was she was a gal from Morgan County, Martinsville. So he said, I'm not moving out of Brown County, so you're going to have to live in Brown County. And also, you're going to have to register Republican because she came from a Democratic family and they were very hardline Democrats. And he said, I'm going to run for sheriff one day. So he said, I'm not telling you who to vote for but you're going to have to register Republican. So, and I don't think he ever did tell her who to vote for after that. So he did end up doing that, and he got elected in 1971. Well, 1970, and he was sworn in in 1971. I do believe that he was the youngest sheriff that had been elected in many years, and he also was the first Republican sheriff in about 40 years. They had always been Democratic sheriffs because Brown County was strongly Democratic, as you know. So he took office in January, and the 70s were pretty fun. There was a lot of things that went on back then. For one thing, the, the, the commune was coming in to Needmore. And we had actually moved from Needmore before the commune came in, because Dad wanted to move to town, and we were growing up as kids, and we were involved in a lot of things. So that's why we moved to town, so that we could participate in all the activities, because both my parents worked. We bought the house on Jefferson Street, which is now Michael's. He bought that house, and he bought the shop and everything behind it in 1962 for $26,000. So we always joked about if we had kept all that property, you know, that would have been a nice little a nugget. <laughs> <laughs> but but he didn't. So and my mom was very mad about that actually when he sold the house and and the shop. But anyhow, he ran for sheriff and won. He had three deputies, three uh, police cars, and then he had his own. And they lived in the sheriff's home, which has been torn down. And I think he was the last sheriff to live there full time at the sheriff's home. The other sheriffs after him uh, lived there some. But they kept their permanent home. My mom and dad lived there all the time. And she was the jail matron. She cooked all the food. She really had very little help. The only help that she had was with the trustees. And they always usually had a trustee. And one of the funny things that happened, they would help her cook and distribute food to the, we called them prisoners. We did not call them inmates. He decided he wanted to get married. And my mom and dad had a wedding ceremony in the jail. And they let them have my bedroom that I was no longer staying in because I was married and in nursing school. And so when I came home to stay on a weekend when my husband and I visited, we, were, we couldn't stay in my bedroom because the trustee and his new wife were there. So that was something that I always razzed my mom and dad about, like, let, please let me know if you're going to marry somebody. So that, you know, we'll get, we'll make other plans before we come back and, and visit. So he was sheriff during the 70s when the commune was coming into place. And he had a really wonderful relationship with the people out the commune. 
I won't mention all the names. You can, if you know Brown County history, you can talk to some of the people that are still around. But one of the things that he said when he went out there was, I really don't want to hassle you guys at all. I do want you to try to obey the law, and I will not tolerate any runaways out here. I do not want any underage runaways hanging out out here at the commune. And they agreed to that so that, to my knowledge, that never happened during that eight years. And they honored that request, which I always thought was pretty neat because there was a lot of people moving around back then. I mean, that was kind of the sign of the times. So he left them alone. He went, went out occasionally when the buffalo got out. They had a buffalo out there, and it would get out, and it would get on the highway. He would have to go out there with another deputy or whatever and get that buffalo back into the field. And it generally happened on a weekend or at night. It never happened during the day. The other thing that happened was during the 70s, Brown County had a pretty good basketball team. In 1972, they won the sectionals. So that was pretty exciting because I think that was the first sectional championship that Brown County had since the school started in 1962. And we were all driving back, all the people, you know how it was. It was a lot like Hoosiers. We were driving up to where the Brown County End Stoplight is. There was an outhouse on fire. They had moved an outhouse, put it out in the middle of the highway, and started it on fire as part of the celebration. So you were allowed back then to do certain shenanigans, probably that you couldn't get away with now, because it was a little bit like Mayberry, I would say. We, we drove up, and I hollered at my dad, and I said, are you coming down to the gym? And he said, I, I won't tell you what, exactly what he said, but he indicated that he'd be coming down at, to the gym as soon as he got the outhouse cleaned up, and only he referred to it as another term. and. That was pretty fun that evening. Thank you, Dawn. That was fun. It's fun years, fun time to remember. I think that I was here part of the time when the commune was going, and some of the people walking down the street, you couldn't help but notice. But thank you very much for coming in this evening. Right. We'll look forward to more stories from Dawn.
we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. Support for the Brown County Hour comes from listeners like you and the support of the Brown County Inn, a family-friendly getaway destination located in Nashville, Indiana, offering locally sourced food, drinks, and live entertainment, with banquet space, indoor-outdoor pool, miniature golf, and more. Information and booking available at browncountyinn.com. Segment 3 continues our Ordinary People Conversations with Rick Kelly. We have a poem from Andrew Hubbard called Dollar Store Shoplifter. And Dave Seastrom shares a few memories of Danny Harden. We'll close the show with another tune from Hamilton Creek, Blue Yodel Number 4. Good evening, this is Vivian Wolf, and this is Ordinary People Telling Ordinary Stories. We have Rick Kelly with us, who grew up here in Brown County and knows a lot of stories. Glad to have you, Rick. Okay, thanks, Vivian. Uh, Pam Rader had asked me to talk a little bit about Kelly Hill, which is my family. I would be the, Brenda and I own uh, a portion of that, uh, 45 acres now, and that's my family. The first Kelly to come here in 1836 was Joseph Kelly. He fought in the War of 1812. Then later in the 1840s, uh, B.R. Kelly, Benjamin Roten Kelly came, uh, who was born in 1817. So in living here, he had lost uh, a wife and a daughter due to illness. And in uh, 1846, he joined the Brown County Blues to fight in the Mexican War against Santa Ana. It was uh, the Polk War, President Polk. And uh, Brown County Blues was part of the 3rd Indiana Regiment. They fought Santa Ana at Buena Vista, second day of the war. Um, they were being hit hard, 3rd Indiana, 1st Mississippi. And um, they were getting pushed backwards. And then the 1st Indiana up behind them came Captain William Tecumseh Sherman to, to, with his artillery on that side. And on the 1st Mississippi, Captain Jefferson Davis came up behind them. And they routed Santa Ana and the Army. But the last valley, James Taggart, who Captain James Taggart from Brown County was killed. So after, the, after that war getting home, about four months later, somehow he married my great-great-grandmother, uh, Mary Jane Marshall. So they moved to Jackson Township for a while. And then Kelly Hill became available, what we call Kelly Hill now. It was owned by a man named James Wise. He was a War of 1812 veteran. He was deeded that land by President Franklin Pierce. So in 1871, Mary Jane bought Kelly Hill. So that deed is actually in her name. It wouldn't be till I think it was 1883 that part of Kelly Hill was bought by B.R. Kelly, his, his wife. So I think it was very unusual. Her family had money. And for a woman to be you know, owning land. And, and it maintained that way until later it, it transferred. So then my great-grandfather, Sam Kelly, was uh, inherited that land. Um, he had two brothers, but he inherited it and later did not get clear title, so they let it go to a sheriff's sale and bought it from the sheriff's sale. And that way, it was a clear sheriff's deed that uh, 
then belonged to Sam. He had a, my, my grandfather, my great-uncle Harry, and Eudora. And so Eudora lived in the cabin for many years. My dad lived there one year uh, when he was very young before moving to the Green Valley Farm. Eudora owned it for a number of years. It was uh, one house she owned. She taught school, even at Ben Davis. She's the only Brown County ever elected to a statewide office report for the Supreme Appellate Courts in 1948 and uh, lived there in summers. So until her death, it was a log cabin with a kitchen, with a pitcher pump, and an outhouse. And that's how she lived. She had a house on Jefferson Street for a while and then one on uh, Main Street which is gone now, but uh, lived there in the winters, and then Kelly Hill in the summers, and just loved living up there. So she sold uh, land to make 46 when she owned it. She also donated the land for the west entrance of the state park. So we own right there up to, uh, the state park is about 300 feet right away, and it was donated to the state. So we have a deed that we're allowed to access the park to get to our property. And then we, uh, you know, it's been in the family a long time. Lots of pieces were sold off to various people, Ramsburgs, uh, Edna Fraser and Hope Fraser bought a piece of it. Uh, and there were others that over time, and then across the road, my Aunt Beulah Jean owned that uh, for a while, 100 acres there that Eudora owned, and my great uncle Harry lived there. Well, that was certainly interesting. Mm-hmm. I think for us to imagine what it was like in deeds and being transferred and the importance of the park mm-hmm. and the fact that women were not supposed to have land. That's another story. Yeah, it's another story. <laughs> well, Rick, come back and tell okay. us another story, okay. please. Thank you. Mm, thanks. Uh, this is Andrew Hubbard. I'm a local poet here in Brown County, and I'm reading a poem called The Dollar Store Shoplifter from my latest book called The Life Force of Clouds. I followed him around for 20 minutes, much more in curiosity than outrage. He stole a can of cheese whiz, four or five pairs of socks, and a handful of glue sticks. The cagey old guy bought a bag of potato chips instead of just sneaking out with his loot. I followed him, and you may well ask if I didn't have anything better to do with my life that day. The answer is no. He walked downtown in the light rain with his overcoat flapping. Motivation intrigues me, and my brain was churning. The dollar value of his thefts was zero. Was it some kind of kleptomaniacal frenzy? For glue sticks? I don't think so. Some kind of sexual thing? If there's something kinky you do with cheese whiz, I don't want to know about it. He went straight to Joe Simpson's food truck in the middle of the puddly white gravel parking lot. He and Joe wave to each other. Joe keeps his great Pyrenees chief on a long chain to his right front wheel. He's the most mellow dog I've ever known. My guy went to chief and pulled a box of Triscuits out of his pocket. The sneaky bastard, I didn't see him take them. Maybe it was before I came into the store. He and chief share the whole box of Triscuits and the whole can of Cheese Whiz. Okay, Cheese Whiz explained, but what about the glue sticks? My guy went off down the town's poor street, and I went home. But I woke up this morning still thinking about the glue sticks. I start making bad jokes, telling my wife I'm stuck on the glue sticks, 
and I need an explanation, but I haven't got a glue. She ignores me with ease. I'm going back to town, going to track this guy down and get the story. Cross-examine him. See if he sticks to it. Brown County is known for the characters that inhabit these hills and hollers. In the early years of the 20th century, Ken Hubbard created several fictional Brown County folks, including Abe Martin, that he used to flesh out his six cartoons a week that appeared in 300 newspapers for 26 years. Abe and the others were colorful and humorous, but they pale in comparison to many of the real people who have actually spent their lives here. Early this December, we lost one of the biggest Brown County characters that many of us have ever had the pleasure to know, Danny Harden. Danny took up banjo playing as a youngster, and combined with his love of bluegrass music, he grew up in the right place at the right time. Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Festival called to him at an early age, and he not only got to know many of the renowned practitioners, he had the opportunity to play with most of them. While he was well known for his music, many of us also knew him as our local building inspector. When I was building my house in the 80s, we were required to follow state building codes, but there was no official inspector for Brown County. On Possum Trot, we had an unofficial inspector, our neighbor Ben Sparks, who owned the local winery. On more than one occasion, he came rolling up on his tractor, smoking his big cigar with a level in his hand. As a retired Navy man, he could be quite formidable, and when he arrived, he would dismount from his tractor and march into the house to determine if my building was up to snuff. When the county hired Danny, he wasn't as formal, but he still wanted to make sure that what we were building was up to code. During the years I was a building contractor, he and I had many encounters. He was a stickler for making sure we were doing good work, but one of the things about Danny was the trust that built up from repeated inspections. In other words, once Danny knew that you followed or exceeded code, his inspections were assiduous but friendly. Today, I'm remembering one inspection that took place in the early 2000s. My mother-in-law needed to relocate to a handicap-friendly apartment. As luck would have it, my sister-in-law had a garage that was located in her backyard. In some ways, it would have been easier to tear down the old structure and build a new one from scratch. But Barb had just put a new roof on that old building, and the decision was made to save the structure by completely remodeling it. Remodeling has less restrictions than building new. But I dutifully pulled a permit and told Danny what my plans were. The old garage was built into the side of a hill, and the concrete block walls were falling in. In response, we excavated next to the building, jacked up the existing roof, removed the old block walls, and stacked the blocks in the hole off to the side. Then we dug new footers and poured concrete walls to improve the structure. I called Danny in after all the new framing and rough mechanics were in place. When Danny showed up for the inspection, he wasn't happy because I didn't have him look at the footers before we poured the walls. Danny was known for a lot of things, but personal agility wasn't one of them. In order to inspect the job, he had to walk across the open floor joists, and I could tell he wasn't having any fun. 
Just as he began his lecture about when I should have called him, my niece Nicole pulled into the drive. She grew up with Danny's kids, and they were very close. When she saw him, Nicole called out his name and ran across the joists into Danny's waiting arms. She excitedly told Danny about the project and how wonderful it was going to be for her grandma to live where they could take good care of her. By this time, Danny had softened up, and I was all smiles when he signed off on the permit. After he left, I told my niece there was a $20 bill for her every time she showed up for one of my inspections. I was kidding, of course. And I believe that the real reason Danny let me slide was that he knew my work and he was sure I did it right. The Brown County Hours had the pleasure to interview Danny and the members of his band, Hamilton Creek, on two occasions. As we close out 2023, we are re-airing our interview that appeared in episode 59 that was first broadcast in February of 2017. And we've included three musical selections that we recorded live in our studio at that time. Rest in peace, Danny. You are a character we'll always remember, and you will be missed. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. Yeah, buddy. Blue Yellow number four. Thanks for tuning in to episode 142 of the Brown County Hour. This show was recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. 
and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. and anytime online. Be sure to look for us on your favorite streaming services. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe, now more than ever, the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Lucy Schultz, Sarah Lytle, Jim Lemon, and Dave Seastrup. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh